Please open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. As you're opening your Bible up or turning your Bible on or opening up the app, however it is you are looking at the Word of God this morning, surely I hope you can gladly say, I cannot tell it all. There's some things you just can't fully describe. So good, so wonderful, so awesome. You just can't tell it all. And that song, however simply it is, what a simple chorus, it captures that truth. We cannot tell it all. We will be singing those things that we cannot describe now. We will be singing it in glory and longing for that day. Well, Daniel chapter 3, before we begin our study, would you join me in prayer, asking the Lord's blessing on our study of his word this morning. Father in heaven, oh God, you have given us your word that we might know you, and in knowing you that we might have life, that we might know your saving actions. We do ask that today you would help us to both see so that we may savor, so that we may serve you with our whole heart, our whole mind, our, all of our strength, that you, O oh God, would be glorified. We ask this in the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen. We are beginning our study this morning in verse 19 to the end of the chapter, but like any good account, any good story, you need the context. Without a context, it is Difficult to understand. Misperception easily creeps in. If you've ever walked up to a group of friends as they were having a conversation, as you walk up, they are talking about something and you completely misunderstand what they're, what they're talking about because you have missed the context. Context matters. Without the context, you might begin watching a movie or enter in, in the middle of a series of movies, or you might enter in, drop in in the middle of a book, and you might miss the entire timeline of the story, the entire context of the story. You drop in in the middle of the second book of The Lord of the Rings, and you might think, these little guys have stolen somebody's jewelry, and he's simply trying to get it back. It is something quite different than that. Context matters. Context matters. And that is true of Daniel chapter 3. Even as we are beginning in verse 19, our story begins back in verse 1. The account of this event happens back in verse 1, where Nebuchadnezzar, the camera lens, so to speak, is focused in on Nebuchadnezzar and what he does. He is out. He, he instructs his metal workers his construction men, whatever, they, he instructs them to put together and to create for him an image, a significant image, a massive image, overlaid or made entirely of gold, standing 90 feet high, about 9 to 10 feet wide. This thing is set out outside the city on the plain of Dira, visible to all people a marker of the glory of King Nebuchadnezzar. It is an image that he demands all peoples to worship. And if you do not worship it, the result is death. The result is death. And then the story shifts from Nebuchadnezzar, what he does, what he demands. It shifts focus 
to the lives of these three men, these companions of Daniel that were introduced back in chapter 1, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the question is, these men who have been along with Daniel, they have remained faithful to the Lord in a difficult setting. Amidst the pressures, amidst the oppression of their time, they have remained faithful in a broken world. And the question is, what will they do now? It's either worship the golden image or die. And we saw last week their determination, no matter what, to remain faithful to the Lord. They were trusting in God. He is supreme over all. He alone is worthy of their worship. There is no other God like him. More than this, they believed that their God was sovereign. He was able to deliver them. He was free. That is, even as they trusted that the Lord would deliver them, he was able to and would deliver them, yet they did not presume upon his grace. They they did not assume that he would save them, yet they said, even if he does not, we will not forsake our Lord. We will remain faithful to him. They stand firm in the face of this trial. On our text again, verses 19, the the emphasis of the chapter shifts. If the first part of the chapter, the emphasis rises to a climax on what will Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do, what what will they do in response to Nebuchadnezzar's demands, The second half of the chapter, again, looks back at Nebuchadnezzar, his actions, his demands, what he expects. But a climax, the conflict centers on not what will Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will do. They are passive. Rather, the focus is on what will God do? What will God do? And what we see is that God delivers He delivers and he judges. So we see that in our text this morning. And there are two primary points that we can see about the king. That is, we see his fury and his inferno. His fury and his inferno. Look with me at verse 19, just the beginning. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression of his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That is, literally, he is filled with rage. His complexion has changed. His attitude has shifted to them. He is flushed with anger. He is seeing red. His anger is exploding now. He's a man outside of his control. And on one level, you you can almost ask, justifiably, why? Why is he so ticked off with these three men? I mean, let's just put everything into perspective, okay? Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful, the most wealthy man in the entire world at this point. Everybody, without exception, bows down, well, with the exception of these three men. I mean, three men. Of all the things to get angry about, he's got a kingdom in which only three people will not do what he says. 
You can imagine any president today would take those odds any day of the week. Three men. That's it. Those are the only ones who are defying him. Instead of chalking that up to, wow, look how powerful I am. Let's kill them and move on. He is enraged. Why? A threat to his power anywhere is a threat to his power everywhere. And we must not be surprised when the powers of this world find the faith of God's people dangerous. That's ultimately what he sees here. He sees that their faith is dangerous. Here are men, they have positions of influence and power. Here are individuals who will not bow the knee even when faced with not just certain death, but horrendous death. This is the same attitude that you will find in many parts of the world today. You travel to North Korea, it is dangerous to be a Christian. They find faith in God, faith in the Christian God, faith in a God who is supreme and who is sovereign over all. They find that dangerous. The same is true for those Chinese believers. Certainly there are Chinese-approved churches, yet those churches are discouraged from preaching certain truths, particularly the supremacy and sovereignty of God. It is dangerous. It undermines the the loyalty that they might have to their own kingdom. It undermines the control of whatever totalitarian regime stands at the heart, stands in power. And certainly you can see this even in our own country. Historic forms of Christianity that hold to a high view of God who is both supreme and sovereign and whose good ways must be followed This view is becoming increasingly not unpopular, but viewed as harmful. Viewed as dangerous. Dangerous to to young men and young women. Christianity at its root has always been dangerous to the world. Because we believe that God is over all, that there is none like him, that our ultimate affections, our ultimate loyalty isn't given to a leader. It's not given to a party. It's not given to a flag. It's not given to anything other than the Lord. Ultimate ultimate loyalty, ultimate adoration, ultimate worship belongs to him and him alone. That's the one to whom we belong. He is supreme. More than this, because he is sovereign, he rules over all. Because he is not only powerful, but free to exercise his power as he sees fit. And he lies outside of the control of any any political party. Means our hope isn't in a leader, isn't in politics, isn't in anything in this world. Our hope, our affections are grounded in God alone. Yet in every age, you can find churches and Christians who are jettisoning, getting rid of these two truths. They are quick to throw them overboard. They do everything they can to become less dangerous to the world, to keep the world from being angry with them, to falling out of favor, to becoming irrelevant 
They bow to the flags of the powers of the world. Perhaps it is their country's flag. Perhaps it is a pride flag. But their ultimate loyalty is not the Lord and what he declares. And when the world threatens them, they show where their ultimate hope is. And too often, the aim of believers and churches is not faith and faithfulness in God. The aim is to keep people from being angry with us. To gain the world's approval. Instead of fearing God, we are afraid of what others may think. And so we are tempted to keep our faith on the down low. To keep it silent. To keep it hidden. Brothers and sisters, let, us, let this not be. This does not mean that you are always able to declare your faith in Christ in every conversation. That is almost impossible. But it does mean that we ought not to be hiding it. We ought to be looking for opportunities to speak of our hope, the hope in Christ. Whether it be in the break room or after work, whether it be with friends or family. Our aim must be to be wholly faithful to God, for that is when we are most dangerous to the world. This is what Jim Elliot describes. We are so utterly ordinary, he says, so commonplace, while we profess to know a power that the 20th century cannot, does not reckon with. Oh, that God would make us dangerous. And unless we believe that God is supreme over all and that he is sovereign over all, we will never be dangerous. Our faith will be at best neutral. But God is never neutral. That is the fury of the king, fury at the faith of these men. And then we see his fury in, manifested in his inferno. Look with me again at verses 19 all the way to 21. He spoke, halfway through verse 19, he spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and they were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace furnace. In each of these verses, mention is made of this fiery furnace, sometimes burning fiery furnace. The emphasis is on its heat, the extreme heat. You see that we are described there at the end of verse 19. The furnace is described as being heated seven times. It is a, a colloquial way of saying it is the thermostat is turned all the way up. All right? He's not worried about the heating bill. He is turning the thermostat all the way up, making it as hot as possible. And you may ask what kind of furnace this is. Certainly, I, so many of you have wood stoves. We have a wood stove. I would venture to guess that none of you have a wood stove that you could yourself get into, much less have three men start walking around. If you do, I would really love to know where you got that wood stove. That would be fascinating. The kind of stove that he is talking about, rather the furnace that he is talking about, isn't a furnace there in the king's palace meant to heat the king's palace in the dead of winter. Most likely what he's describing is the furnaces, those furnaces that would have been used in the construction of the image. Put yourself in the scene of what's happening. 
The music has played. Everyone's been commanded to fall down and worship, and everyone does. The accusers come forward. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm not sure that you noticed, but all the way on the side over there, there were these three guys that weren't worshiping. They don't worship your God. They don't follow him. Let's get them. And Nebuchadnezzar, enraged, does, confronts them publicly. And the furnace that is being described here would have been one of the massive furnaces most likely used to facilitate the heating of the bricks that would have been used as the base of this image, or perhaps it was used in the smelting process of the gold for the image. It would have been vast, it would have been large. Archaeological digs that have dug up similar furnaces to what is being described here. They suggest that they could have been heated up to 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. We're talking about, even though they would have been thrown in and death would have been very quick, it would have been a horrendous way to die. And notice, not only does he have the furnace turned all the way up, notice that he has mighty men of valor, mighty soldiers, some of his mighty men who in his army, he uses them to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we can gather that he, these men picked these guys up and threw them in. question comes, why these mighty men? Why not just any soldiers? Well, perhaps it's a part of just the intimidation factor. What we have here is a, a contest between Nebuchadnezzar and God. And if you go back, you'll find earlier in this chapter this, this gauntlet that has been thrown down by Nebuchadnezzar when he asks, what God can save you out of my hand? And it's almost as if the, he turns the furnace all the way up to its maximum temperature and he has the strongest men available take these guys, bind them, and throw them in. He's, he's using this all as a way to say there is no one and nothing that can save you. No one. You can't escape. No one else is going to come in. Your God is helpless. There is no help for you. These three men are in Nebuchadnezzar's hands, he thinks, and they are going to taste his anger, his wrath, his fury, his judgment. And if the chapter stopped here, this would still be a remarkable chapter. These men, faced with death, would not bow the knee. That is an example worth following. The chapter doesn't end there. The account doesn't end there. The contest isn't just between Nebuchadnezzar and these three guys. The contest is between Nebuchadnezzar and God. Nebuchadnezzar has thrown down the gauntlet and the Lord picks it up. Look with me at verses 22. We'll read all the way to the end of the chapter. Therefore, Actually, let's just read to verse 25. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Notice who the first victims of the fire are. The only victims of the fire are. It is not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who die. It is the very men who are there to make certain that these guys cannot escape. It is those who are judged. It is those who are killed. That is the first irony that we see in this passage, that the judgment fire of King Nebuchadnezzar and the judgments of the world are turned back by God upon the very ones who would use them against his people. Again and again, throughout the Old Testament and New, you find the people of God asking at various times, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, will we suffer? How long will you allow the wicked to go unpunished? We find such words in Revelation 6.10. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood that is those who were killed for the name of the Lord? How long will you judge? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Don't you long for justice? I mean, don't you long for justice? For righteousness? You know, the best thing that we can get in this world, the best thing that we can hope for, even from our justice system, isn't perfect justice. It's what we might call proximate justice. That is, the best that we can hope for is that we get something close to justice. And what justice is there? for the man who most recently went out and killed many people. He is dead. What hope for justice do we have? Is the hope for justice over? Is that it? Part of the promise here, part of what we see here, is that God will have justice. He will have justice for his people. The very ones who would leverage their power, their authority to oppress and to harm the people of God are the very ones that God himself judges. Though it appears slow to our eyes, God in his judgment, his justice is coming. Not only do we see God's judgment, we see God's deliverance of those who trust in him. You see this in our text, verse 23, the king asked, didn't we cast three men down into the midst of the fire? And he's answered, yes, and he responds, I see four men, and the fourth one is, they're all walking around free, unbound, and the fourth one is like that of the Son of God. Many interpreters think that what we have here is a is an angel that is being described, and it certainly well could be. The Son of God in the Old Testament is a term that is used at times to describe angelic creatures. Many other scholars, and I 
think they are right. They look at this and they think what we have here is an indication of the presence of a pre-incarnate Son of God. That is Christ Jesus before he is born. Either way, what we find is that God, by his own presence, is with his people and ensuring them through. What we find is that these, these men who would have known Isaiah 43, 1-3, which says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, and you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. They had that promise, and they trusted Him. And they were found to be right. Friends, God is not threatened by the powers of this world. I mean, they, they were staring the, the fire of this furnace in the face. They felt it as they were drawing near and as they are thrown in, nothing. No matter what comes, no matter what we face, no matter how grim it all may feel, we have this confidence in God because he always delivers on his promises. He always wins. Psalm 2 reminds us, the Lord himself tells us, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. The nations of the world conspire against God and God's reaction is not fear, is not trepidation. It is derision. What is God's response? He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. He is not threatened. Though our God is high and lifted up, yet he is present with us. That is what we see here. Our God is present with his people. There is not a trial that we pass through that, God, that our God is not faithfully with you. And if these men who merely had the promise of the prophet Isaiah, if they anchored themselves to it and believed it and found it faithful, found God to be faithful to his promise, how much, you and I, how much more ought you and I to be faithful, to be firm in our commitment? We have not a mere promise. We have the very Son of God who has come, who has died, and who has risen again. If he has done that, how much more will he freely give us all things? Because of Christ, we have this promise in John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and my Father are one. God delivers his people from the ultimate enemies. Not just fire. The ultimate enemy that you and I have isn't, isn't a government, our government, or a foreign government. Your enemy, my enemy, our greatest enemy is our sin. It is our guilt. It is our condemnation before God. We are all sinners. 
And the payment for our sin is death. The wages of our sin is death. You know, you and I deserve death. Not just physical death. But the death that is described in Romans and, and the New Testament is that, is that spiritual death. Death to God. Inability to come to Him. Separated from Him for all eternity. Under His condemnation and wrath. That is death. That's what you and I naturally on our own. That's what you and I are. That's what you and I will experience. All our sin is arrayed against us. Our pride, our selfishness, our desires for what God has given to others, our covetousness, our lies, our lust, our anger, our self-determination, our dishonoring of God's name, our disobedience and dishonoring of our parents, our lack of kindness and patience toward others, our gossip, our complaining, our and countless other sins. We are like these soldiers. We deserve God's judgment. And outside of Christ, we will taste that judgment. But there is hope, isn't there? It's not hope that we can be better. It's not hope that we will do better. It's not even hope that if we are somehow more religious, then God will be pleased with us. Our hope is in Christ. Galatians 3.13 tells us that Christ has become a curse for us. The law we are under, naturally we are under the curse of the law, but Christ in his mercy has become the curse of the law for us. Our sin, as we sometimes sing, is paid for. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Powers of sin and guilt and death are conquered by Christ who bore our sin and guilt and died under the wrath of God in our place and in the place of sinners. And so we read in verses 26 and forward, the Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Here, this is not a private, a private spectacle. It is public. It is for all to see. And Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not worship or serve any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. 
Nebuchadnezzar goes from threatening anyone who worships to any other god to threatening anyone who says anything negative about the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we will forgive Nebuchadnezzar if his evangelistic fervor, so to speak, goes a bit too far. He knows no other way than to threaten death. But I want you to notice two things from this passage. Two thoughts for those who trust in God. For those who trust in the Lord, the only way out is in. The only way out is in. The only way out of the fire for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wasn't to bow the knee. If they were to be faithful to the Lord, they could not bow the knee. They could not worship what God had told them not to. To remain faithful to God, to remain trusting and hopeful in the Lord, the only way out was in. And as they went in, that is exactly where they found the Lord. Waiting for them, present with them. 1 Peter 4.19 reminds us of this. That we, he calls us to entrust our souls to our faithful Redeemer and Creator. To humble ourselves in the fear of the Lord. True faith in Christ follows the way of Christ even when it leads to suffering. If you are going to be faithful to the Lord in a world that is faithless and in rebellion, we need to remember that the only way out is in. The only way out of suffering is by enduring it and trusting the Lord in it. But secondly, I want us to see something powerful in this passage. For those who trust in God, the way up is the way down. The way up is the way down. Look with me at the very first verse of chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. The very first verse tells us that he has exalted this statue. He has set this image up in the province of Babylon in this special place. Now look with me at verse 30. After all that God has done, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Do you see that, that connector? Just as the image was set up, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are promoted. And just as the image is set up in the province of Babylon, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are promoted. They are given greater honors in the province of Babylon. Sometimes we think that to gain ground, that is to excel, to climb the ladder, what we need to do is we need to conform. We need to become less clear about what we believe. We need to be more affirming of other ways. Faithfulness demands us following the way of the Lord. And if we will follow the way of the Lord down just as these men were cast down into the pit, into the furnace, 
The way down is the way up. And the way up is the way down. We can only go up if we have descended into suffering. Christ, we see this. He suffers. And because he suffers, he is highly exalted. And if we would be exalted with him, we too must hope in the Lord. Again, 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Friends, we can become so easily obsessed with who or what the world is obsessed with. With what is trending. The newest gadget, the newest investment, the newest speaker of the house, or the newest boyfriend of Taylor Swift. But exaltation in the end is in God's hands. Wait upon him. Trust in him. Do not, be, do not marvel at the glories of this world. Do not lust after what the Lord claims and promises. Hope in him. Humble yourselves under his mighty hand. And in due time, his time, he will exalt you. We can trust him to deliver us. We can trust him to vindicate us. We can trust him. Let us trust him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we so easily put our trust in ourselves. We so quickly put our confidence in other things, in other people. Father, I pray that you will help us to anchor ourselves to you, to your promises, to your finished work in Christ Jesus. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope for vindication and deliverance is not in this world. And it will not come from this world. So Lord, help us see you. Help us remember your promises by your grace, O oh God. Let us live in light of them. For your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.